Hey, welcome back to another episode of Storm King's Teddy. This is another Hey, Let's Meet Everybody episode. I don't, we haven't really been numbering these. I mean, kind of like 4.5 or 5.5, but uh, this is just a, a get to know you. And this time we have our DM on. Kat, how you doing? Good. How are you? Uh, good. Uh, quit complaining an hour ago. Um, also glad to have Teddy on. Uh, appreciate you carving out the time for us, man. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, anytime. And uh, once again, I want to say that that goes out to everybody in the group. If uh, anybody ever just has something they want to come on and say, um, let us know. We'll make some time. And uh, this this should be a platform for everybody to uh, to get onto and have some fun with if they want to. And if they don't want to, that's that's fine too. So. Um, anyway, uh, glad to have you here. And, um, so, uh, have you ever podcasted before? I have. Have you? Uh, like on the regular or? Not regularly. Um, most of the time I've been invited on to either be a guest speaker or, um, a co-host, my friend Will, who has already been on your show, he's tried to launch a couple of podcasts, and he's brought me on to both of those okay. attempts. And what were those covering? Well, the podcast that he launched, I think it must have been last year. It was called Casting Call. And it was mostly about fan casts and discussing casting trends in movies and television, um, stuff happening at the time. And currently, we have a free flow podcast that Will hosts on the last Sunday of every month. So at the end of last game, um, we. We met with our third co-host and dived right into it after picking up a late dinner. And that's called Unofficially Morons at Midnight. We have to keep on changing the name for <laughs> Twitch because Twitch doesn't like the name Morons. And it's really just us talking about whatever. Um, our third co-host, Jesse, is a bit of an introvert. So we use it as an excuse to convince him to get out of the house and do stuff with us. <laughs> so I, I find it interesting that um, the uh, media platforms want you to censor yourself. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I tried to get a license plate for uh, after my wife and I had two kids. I had to, tried to get a license plate that said for mix because we have Irish in our, you know, in our mm-hmm. ancestry and they sent me a letter said you can't have that it's an ethnic slur i'm like it's a slur on me i why do you care <laughs> so um but anyway yeah i get it so um okay well um glad to have you on this um cat how long have we done podcasts now oh gee um it's Probably been as long as we've been playing D and D, roughly, right? So a couple, two years, going on three. Yeah, but um, nothing probably quite as regular as this. 
Right. So um, the doing the doing the weekly recaps is actually kind of upped our our number quite a bit. So, um, but, but it's but it's been a lot of fun. Um, all right. So, um, Kat, you want to start us out on questions? All right. Let's start it out, like you said. So, Teddy, how long have you been playing D and D? Well, that's a tough question, isn't it? Uh, because people have been playing D&D since people figured out campfires and basic language, in my opinion. Um, Gary Gygax, uh, putting a trademark on it, be damned. Um, (laughs) But I guess if we're talking about um, structured role-playing games in Dungeons & Dragons, I suppose I've been playing since about the age of 12. Um. And that occurred at a garage sale that my mother brought me to. Um, We were just poking around, seeing if there was anything neat. And one of the books immediately caught my attention. This blue book with this this robed man with a great big white beard and lightning and magic was coming out of his fingertips. And it said on the title, in the title it was Advanced... Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Um, that was like, I believe like the first edition of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And something about it just sort of called to me. And, you know, I asked my mom what it was. And my mom was there. Uh, she's not much of a D&D player, but um, she was there in the periphery. and. Um, is a rather nerdy person herself, so she had nothing against it or anything. Um, and the book was like a dollar, so we picked it up, and I was voracious. Um, first edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons is not a very good game. Yep, I'm with you. But, but it is a game. That I tried to play with my friends in my small town constantly. Um, And none of them could get it. And I barely understood the rules because they were so convoluted. Um, But I was technically playing from that point. So, and was first edition what was still in Sway then? Or was that just an old book? Hell no. Um, I believe when I was 12, second edition was still um, the big boy on the block, but I had no idea. Right. I was not in the community. Um, I didn't know there were other editions of D and D. And if I have my timeline, correct. Second edition was right at its tail end and they were introducing sword and sorcery and 3.0 shortly thereafter. Yeah, and that's kind of where I left. I, I, I can't say I left the game. That's kind of where I stopped getting new editions. I bought the core books for third edition, and I bought the core books for 3.5, thinking surely it would be better. And did not like either of those editions. Didn't buy a single book for fourth, and was that way with fifth, too, until you know a couple years ago. But I have to say I'm really enjoying fifth edition. I have a question for you, Wind. Yeah, shoot. Um, I've heard 
I've heard you say that before in previous episodes that you were not a fan of 3.5. Correct. Um, I would like to know why, like what about it turned you off so strongly? So uh, I think that it was just because of, I came up with basic first edition, second edition, which were all very much whether or not there were improvements and there were along the way. It was, uh, it was Gygax's original system, which entailed, um, okay, when you rolled it to hit roll, everything was Thaco based. Everything was, um, you know, your negative armor class figured into the math easily because you were adding a negative number. Therefore you needed, you know, a different number to roll instead of just, um, you know, presenting a number and saying, this is your target. Um, so everything just became, um, I guess the, the system that I was comfortable with and had grown up with was being retooled in a way that I didn't, that I didn't care for. And I also thought that second edition had brought enough complexity to the game and that third edition and, uh, 3.5 made it, um, too complex. Um, so I, I was like, there, there is a, there is a point where, uh, I don't want to have to keep an Excel sheet to, uh, figure out what my character's doing. Yeah. Um, so, and that's, and I felt like, um, three, especially 3.5, it was that way. So, um, uh, I, I, it just really turned me off. By the way, speaking of Gygax, I've actually met the man. Well, I, I had when he was still alive. Um, I used to go to Gen Con almost every year and the year that my wife was pregnant with our first child, she went with me and we were, we stayed in the Hilton and we were riding down on an elevator to breakfast and Gary Gygax walked into the elevator. I'm like, you're Gary Gygax. And he's like, yes, I am. I said, you have no freaking idea how much of my life you've wasted. He's like, don't blame me, kid. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, he was, he was, he was really nice guy. Um, but, uh, yeah. So anyway, that's kind of my thing. I, like I said, I, I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed learning basic. Um, I thought advanced D and D was better because it added, uh, more complexity and also made things, uh, well, for instance, in basic, like I mentioned before, clerics didn't even get spells until second level. Um, so you were basically a fighter with blunted weapons for your first level. And then, um, I know you could be an elf. Yeah. And an elf was, (laughs) was a character class, (laughs) not just a race. Elf. Yeah. The elf class dwarf. Yes. Which was a class again. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So then, um, you know, first edition fixed that, uh, where now you have races and classes that each race can be. Uh, second edition really did make things more readable and, uh, streamlined added, uh, enough with the way of proficiencies that I, that I really think was the precursor to our skill roles now where you would have proficiency, you had weapon proficiency slots, so you could be proficient in so many weapons. You had non-weapon proficiency slots, so you could be proficient in, you know, the non-weapon skills, uh, horseback riding or, you know, whatever. And then, um, but now the, the skills are very, very much generic. It's a, um, athletic skill instead of a 
horseback riding proficiency check. Um, and I, I like the way that fifth edition does that because then you don't have, you know, you don't have to, I, I guess, focus so much. So, um, specialization was introduced in second edition. I liked that. Um, so there were just a lot of things that I liked about the early editions that had changed and made, I thought unnecessarily complex for third and 3.5. I guess that's my short answer, long way around to saying it. Right on. So, um, so when you first picked up, um, your, your, um, garage, garage sale book, were you immediately dubbed the DM or did you actually start playing first? There was nobody else. Right. Right. Um, I guess because my mom didn't want to do it. Um, my dad did not have the cognitive ability (laughs) to do it. Um, and all of my friends didn't understand what we were supposed to be doing. And to be fair, neither did I, um, it was kind of like in isolation because I didn't have a, a DMG and I didn't have a monster manual. I just had the player's handbook. Um, so yeah, eventually I did take up the mantle of Dungeon Master just because um, lack of I other options. Only, yeah, like yeah. I was the only one with. <laughs> the only resource we had to try and figure out what we were doing and the game itself was mostly just I think I want to be an elf. Your elf is really cool. What does your elf do? Like it is like we we accidentally distilled it because we were 12 13 and um you know, like when you're that age and you have nobody guiding you, it it all seems very esoteric. There's a lot of numbers that you don't really, you're not really sure what they mean. Uh, percentages, um, no, no real point of reference of like bending the rules so you could play a paladin and just hoping you roll well enough for the stats to be a paladin. Uh, I know that. Yeah. Uh, So, like, yeah, I like I was the DM, but we were also like not really playing Dungeons and Dragons as that edition of Dungeons and Dragons wanted to be played, right? Um, We more took the book as a form of inspiration, right? Sure, and. Um, speaking of, um, books that you took as inspiration, did you play any other TSR products like Star Frontiers or anything like that? The only other, so here's the thing. Um, first edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons was ultimately a terrible experience for me. (laughs) Um, I was entranced. I was really interested. It was in my mind, but... Um, with the lack of players and the lack of understanding, we were only like playing for a few months before it became more of just like, okay, this is a funny little like curiosity, right? And we can just put this back on the bookshelf and not worry about it. Um, 
and instead focus on stuff like reading fantasy novels, right? And being like D&D adjacent. Um, I stopped playing role-playing games for a long time after that. Um, and I think it must have left like a bad taste in my mouth, but I don't remember it that way, right? So I did not pick up another role-playing game until 3.5, and I was pushed into it um, by mutual friends. And at that point, I just played. I played a couple of sessions in high school, didn't really like the group. Um, and then got back into it in college and played a proper campaign with a DM who, uh, well, a little bit ridiculous and i in retrospect i don't really like the way he did things um all respect jeremy i still had a great time if you're listening to this at any point um after that as an adult i played uh the phase rip marvel oh, okay that is the only other tsr product i ended up brushing shoulders with and i really like that game conceptually <laughs> yeah um i think i think that dungeons and dragons certainly now especially has had the most uh refining done to it and it seems like tsr games really needed a high level of refining from basic concept um yeah i agree but um after i decided that D&D was a thing that was going to be a big part of my life. I did I like I tried to catch up voraciously and it looks like to me that yeah, things were sort of like ugly and rough around the edges, right? Uh with those in those early TSR days, but what can you expect? Like they were the only guys doing it for a long time. Sure. And, and they were doing it first. And I mean, if you go back far enough, it was chainmail. It was yeah. chain mail. Yeah. Right. So it, it literally was supposed to be rules to run miniature combat by. <laughs> it wasn't even yeah. a quote unquote role playing game. Like, wasn't it like, like a Warhammer style, like massive combat game before that. And then Gygax was like, what if we just had like three or four of these guys in a castle? Right. Yeah. And that, and that was the first like white box set. Um, right on yeah and it was i actually have that set um I, I i wasn't playing when it was uh when it was in sway but i went back and found one just casually flex why don't you yeah let me see if i can no not too much um but yeah it's a um um <laughs> uh, it's it's also in a fireproof safe so if my the rest of my house burns down D survives <laughs> um Okay, so Kat, you're up. Um, you mentioned that you started with uh, 3.5, is that correct? Um, or did yeah, you that's, start earlier? Uh, yeah, I would say that by the definition of like actually playing D&D as intended, uh, 3.5 is where I cut my teeth. Okay. And you also mentioned that you started in person, so let's talk about the online aspect how when and how did you transfer to online 
I transferred to online um, after the majority of my friends had run away, or run away, had moved away. Um, yeah, like, I started playing as an adult, right, really. I dipped a little bit into it as a teenager, but we all had adult lives, and I'm not opposed to playing in person. Those early games in person are really special. But it became more practical to play online when we learned about Roll20. Um, for a few reasons. One is you can play from the comfort of your own home, right, at your workstation. Um, you don't have to. You don't have to worry about um, getting food for everybody. You don't have to worry about driving to a particular location. You don't have to worry about traffic. You don't have to worry about. Um, you don't have to worry about uh, being necessarily like presentable. Um, like I have, I have definitely run games for you guys in pajamas with a shirt with a mustard stain on it. Uh, <laughs> like, and Roll20 gives me the freedom to be that comfortable, which, like, it, it seems like a minor thing, right? But um, it's it's a lot more convenient. Um, and I don't have to worry about producing sets or hand-drawing... Um, maps with a dry erase marker i don't have to worry about um i don't have to worry about looking over and seeing whether or not a player is cheating on their dice roll i don't have to worry about um i don't have to worry about miniatures miniatures are so expensive and they're super <laughs> cool but i don't want to spend upwards of uh $300 on a set of miniatures that i'm going to use for one or two encounters for one dungeon encounter um when i could just like grab grab or make some art online throw a border over it and i have my miniature that i can that i can make infinite copies of you know yeah we definitely so, ran into those issues live as well i mean seemed like everybody had miniatures that they brought and then we just kind of made a pool of them and um sometimes your um you know kobolds looked an awful lot like nickels other, yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever <laughs> whatever you had on hand so um yeah that's and that's that's definitely all advantages to to doing online i i still have a lot of nostalgia for the in person play oh don't get me wrong there's a magic when you're around a table and i've been missing it um and but at this point, I would, like professionally, I want to play online because of all the practical reasons. Um, but if I'm playing for friends, I want to be around a table a lot of the time, right? I want to see like facial expressions. I want to see reactions to things. Um, I can be a lot more expressive. There is a magic at the table that um, online can get close to but not quite replicate um 
And I wouldn't say that one is better than the other. Well, but both, it depends on what kind of game you want to run. And they both have advantages. I mean, you pointed yeah. out a lot of the ones that are um, doing, you know, doing online play. But um, so, yeah, I, I have nothing against the online play because it actually gets me more D&D than it would if I was trying to gather up live sessions. Because like you said, you know, all of my friends are adults and we've got lives and kids and you know, jobs and it's, it's hard to carve out time for role-playing. So, um, so, and, and be honest, cat. So, uh, Teddy said what he played in last night. How about you? Uh, just my sweatpants and t-shirt. Oh man. I'm underdressed boxers and a necklace. <laughs> Hell yeah, brother. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay. So, you you said your first like playing experience, not DMing, was kind of three point five. What was your first character? I'm always interested my, to find this out. So my first character, strictly speaking, I don't remember. Um, like the first three point five game I played in was, I didn't have a good time, so I don't remember my character. Um. The first character that I remember distinctly was in my buddy Jeremy's game. And I made this human cleric named Deve Dine. He was um, a cleric of Paylor. And I love that character so much. And I stole the name. Uh, are you too familiar with Andre Norton? Yes. No. So Andre Norton is this classic fantasy and sci-fi author. And uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, um, but I believe, as legend has it, when Gygax was playtesting Dungeons & Dragons, he invited a group of people to play, and Andre was among that company. And she wrote a book called Quag's Keep. And my favorite character from that book was Steve Dine. Uh, my character and the character depicted in the book ended up being very different, but um, that's where the inspiration came from. And Dave is this young third son, youngest child of a uh, of one of the high priests of Pelor, and you know we all started at level one. He had just been uh, promoted to have real responsibility. Um, his father was a big deal. He lived a rather cloistered life. Um, I'm sure like, Keelan, in a lot of ways, reminds me of Dave. Um, and he just wanted to do good, right? And the campaign was centered around a war. The war was like the the major set piece of the plot. And... Steve had this thing that became a recurring storytelling motif for me and my style, which is struggling with the burden of being good, right? The getting up and making the choice to be good for no other reason but to be good. But that is 
your central truth. There is no other reason to be good because he had challenges with his faith. He had challenges with his church. Um, his brother, who he admired a great deal, Vanek Dine, was this like war hero paladin, and he came to learn that Vanek was a war criminal. So he had a crisis of faith, and um, it was really fun being challenged to be good. The um, to put yourself at the same moral standard as Superman, you know, um, and he, he's still one of my favorite characters. I love. So I'd like I'd like to actually get your take on alignment real quick. So um, Keelan is obviously lawful good, and I'm assuming that Tabanay is also a good aligned character. Um, have you found throughout your playing and DMing that lawful good characters are held to a higher standard of play than any other alignment? Nope. You don't think so? Chaotic good. So I, <laughs> I have always thought that lawful good characters were more scrutinized than any other alignment. and the, They are more scrutinized. I'll agree. Because they, um, it's, it seems like, um, you know, okay, so originally paladins could only be lawful good. And if you, so as a DM, I, I kept alignment charts on everyone, but it seemed like I was more, I always scrutinized the paladin more in the game than I did any other character. Even if they were a priest um, of a chaotic evil deity, I was more, I, I scrutinized the lawful good paladin more than I did the chaotic evil priest. So, uh, I, yeah, I, I find that that happens with a lot of people. And I think that comes directly from, um, lawful good is such a narrow axis. And if you deviate from that at all in early editions of Dungeons and Dragons, paladins lose their powers. Yeah, permanently. Yeah. Uh, yeah so. Um, I mean, you, the, they, they they put in flavor text like you can go on a quest and sure, stuff. And yeah, talk to your GM about it, but like yeah, like they're just you're a fighter, but worse right. because <laughs> you decided to, um, I don't know, eat more than your than what your god allowed was a um, fair allotment of food for that day. You went and got a heaping of seconds. Now you don't have any powers. So the which is the alignment sorry? the alignment charts that I kept. So I, I kept one on, you know, lawful, neutral, and evil, and then I kept, or, or uh, chaotic, and then I kept another one on good, neutral, and evil. And there were five, uh, five steps in each of the categories. So if you declared your alignment as lawful good, you started in the middle of lawful, and you started in the middle of good. And then as the campaign progressed, I would tell people when decisions they made were going to move their their marker on the alignment chart, like committing a murder that may move you two marks towards evil um, instead of just like one. And if you, if you worshiped a deity, you would be told before an alignment shift would happen. Like, Hey, you're on the edge, straighten your shit out. And then here's your warning. Right. And then, but if they didn't have a deity, they weren't even told. And if they flipped alignment of any type, they lost a level. 
Oh shit. Yeah. So <laughs> like, yeah, they, if they were ninth level, they went down to eighth, like the bottom of eighth and then started from there. So flipping alignment was a bigger deal in most of my games. So, um, but uh, like I said, I, I found that I scrutinized the lawful good characters harder. So, uh, I, I even, I've quit keeping alignment charts since then because I'm like, that's not fair to the rest of the, it's not fair to the people that want to play good characters. If I'm, you know, up their butts with a microscope and not the other people. So it also seems like a lot of work. <laughs> I mean, for the most part, it was pretty easy. The, the chart was there and all I had to do was when a real decision came up, Hey, I'm going to save myself instead of saving someone else, or I'm saving someone else endangering myself. Those are, those are easy things to, to slip, you know, in alignments. Neutral became the hardest alignment to play because you, you know, just through normal course of an adventure, you may be trying to save somebody and you might be in danger of going good. So then you got to go do some rotten shit. To, oh yeah. Neutral is very difficult. Yeah, it is. Like, like uh, about the lawful good discussion. I personally believe lawful good is the default for people. Oh, really? Really? I do. Because in general, right? Um, because most people look at alignment and be like, oh, you have to embody all of these at once, right? But if you, like, think about, like, the average person, right? And we're, we're dipping into philosophy here. A lot of people like to think that the world is neutral. Um, and people are terrible. And don't get me wrong, people certainly have the capacity to be terrible. But if you really look at it broad scope, most people, um, most people do not go out and hurt anybody mo- uh, intentionally. Most people are law-abiding, right? You might skiff it or bend it here and there, right? But most people um, tend to want to fit in with the status quo because like, with the like the bureaucratic systems that we've built around us, uh, it tends to be easier, right? And and people don't want to hurt anybody, right? If if um if Bob next door asks to use your lawnmower and Bob hasn't like betrayed you or done anything to really break your trust sure like use use my lawnmower right i am trusting you with something of mine to make your life easier right and it is a very simple um non-dramatic um nature of morality on a on a fundamental social people interacting with people way i think a peasant all of my peasants and commoners in D, unless they have like particular backstories that would make them feel differently they are lawful good right in my games um storm reach is a bit different because it's it was founded by pirates right so there's a bit more of a mix but you know um you go to a farming village the farmers are lawful good that doesn't necessarily mean that they will like go out and die for crowd and country um because it is the right thing to do no it's 
I'm not particularly interested in breaking any laws because the laws are probably there for a reason that's above my pay grade and um I don't want to hurt anybody you know like lawful good is the default but it's like a soft lawful good where the prototypical paladin is hard lawful good if that makes sense all right so cat where do you think um people in the real world fall on the D alignment chart as a matter of course um i think people are unpredictable i i agree with what T- teddy has been saying that most people are law-abiding and you know just want to stick to their lane but i'm going to go chaotic good and i am actually going to say lawful neutral um, I think that people like laws because they can be used to their own benefit. I think people are very self-serving and, um, that's, you know, if, if, um, if doing charity work, for instance, um, every time that you went out and worked in a soup kitchen, someone kicked you in the nuts, you wouldn't do it continuously because, you know, there's, there's negative there. They're to to me. They're out there for their own feel good. I'm doing something for someone else. Therefore, it makes me feel better about myself. Uh, and, and you're right, Teddy. This is all philosophy. I mean, it, it's down to just kind of the way yeah. people's have people have worldviews. I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer. It's just that I've always viewed people as very um, selfish and self serving, and uh, that they prefer to have laws to use to their own benefit because if they are bound by the laws, then so are others. So I would, I would agree with lawful. I would say lawful with neutral tendencies and then, um, full on neutral with, uh, with a tendency for good and evil. But that's like, you, yeah. you know, I don't, like I said, I don't think there's a right answer. Just that's my own. Yeah. Um, the, the morality axis, the alignment axis is really fascinating and way too simplistic. Um, Oh, that's true. I, yeah, I like, I tend to tell people when they're thinking about alignment to not really worry about it, right? Um, you know, like, Kat, you and I have had this conversation, right? Where, um, when it comes to player characters, a big part of what defines alignment is a combination of culture and personal worldview, right? Like, yeah. Uh, do you, would you mind if we talked about Tabane's alignment? Oh, I don't care at all. Go for so, it. So, I like our conversation about Tabane's alignment because um, I, I got I got the impression from you that you've it helps you realize things about Tabane um, and realize things about the game because. By the cold hard definition of lawful good, that's a that that is a lot of like responsibility to play that hard, and it doesn't really make sense for every character. But Tabane is a patriot. Tabane is an oath of the crown, um, soldier and champion for her country of Valinar. And the laws in Valinar are different than her immediate neighbors, right? Something that is considered evil in like the realm of the hobgoblins, right? 
or evil in Breland might not be so evil in Valinar and vice versa. Like, um, in like elven culture, sort of broad stroke, you honor your ancestors, and elves and Eberron are literally reincarnated, right? It's very important to do. Um, and while that might be evil for a Breelish person to uh, cruelly kill the ghost of their ancestor, it's not necessarily like to forget to say thank you, great-grandfather, in your prayers, right, and remember the stories of your forebears is not in and of itself an evil act, where in parts of Valinar and definitely... Um, in Arenal, where the where the really hardcore elves live, like that would be, right? Um, so it's more important to, at least in my opinion, it's more important to determine what is important morally to your character, and why do they feel right? Why do they identify as one of these alignments, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, our, our conversation about figuring out Tabane's alignment and her relationship with being a paladin and your relationship with Tabane and how you'll be playing her was really fun because we got to cover stuff like that. Yeah, it was very enlightening because um, as you spoiled it, you said my oath. Um, oh, sorry, pardon me. That's, that's fine. We're just going to gloss over it. No one, we, be, no one knows be, what it is. Wind, bleep it out in the editing process. <laughs> this is the editing yeah. process. <laughs> oh, shit. That's fine. But yeah, law was a big pillar of the oath. And I'm like, I'm sitting here going like, I don't want, I don't want to go against the law, but I don't want to have to like strictly follow it. And then you enlighten me saying like, you know, it's not the law of Stormreach I have to follow. It's the law of Valinar and the culture of Valinar and all that. So it really... It made me going from playing a lawful good character to being like, oh, I'm playing lawful good. Like, I really don't want to be constricted so much to being like, oh, it's not as constricting as I thought. It actually has a lot of breathing room if in the, in the way you look at things. Yeah. And, like, acting against your alignment, that is important to consider. Like, I don't have a five-point process. I have more of, like, a like a three strike system. Um, and it's definitely more important if a God or an oath is involved. Um, but I feel, I feel like I play a little bit more loose with it. Um, cause making decisions, especially under duress, right. Is difficult. Um, so I usually just look at like the big things. If Tabane turned around and just like, killed one of the storm lords because another storm lord offered her a great heap of money then maybe we sit down and have a talk because it's definitely evil yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know if tabane is like this this corrupt um baker has way too many sweetbreads and isn't giving them to children. Yeah, I'm going to pocket a few and give them to the orphans. It's technically ste stealing. It's technically chaotic. Um, but 
it's so minor in the cosmos. And typically, when you're lawful good, in my opinion, being good is more important for player characters. Because, like, kind of getting at what you were saying, Wind, if you're a lawful good character, and say you're dealing with a corrupt government, right? And you need to make a choice between supporting your evil king or joining the rebellion. The rebellion is objectively, be, because there are planes of good and evil, so it's not abstract, it's tangible, right? These forces exist as sources of power. Joining the rebellion to be good is objectively the correct decision. And that shouldn't flip you from lawful to chaotic, and it shouldn't um, destroy your oath, right? And then let's say it's like, let's say it's Tabane, right? Uh, or uh, let's say it's someone who is oath of the crown, and so you have this evil king you swore to serve your nation. That becomes a question of well, what does your nation mean? Does your nation mean your monarch, or does your nation mean your people? Right? right. There's a lot more flexibility in alignment um, if you're just willing to explore it. Yeah, I agree. All right. I might have been bottling that up for a long time. <laughs> no, that's, uh, no. That's, that's all good talk on alignment stuff, so... Um, yeah, something of that. Well, uh, it seems like it's a uh, sometimes a much overlooked aspect of the game, except where it comes into play directly with, uh, you know, like a character's faith or something. So it's all good stuff. All right. Well, with that rabbit hole done, let's get back to the interview. Um, we found you on Start Playing Games, uh, which is a nifty little website that Win found. Uh, and sent it over to us. How long have you been on the platform? Uh, I have been... I want to say it's been eight months since I started. Oh? Yeah, I haven't been with them for very long. How many games do you normally run at once? Uh, I am currently running um, professionally. I am running five games. I am running... Two different campaigns for Ravenloft, um, using um, 5e's Curse of Strahd as a central pillar. I am running Storm King's Thunder. I am running a private game for a client, and I am running uh, Descent into Avernus. Okay. And outside of um, and, and is is this a side hustle for you? Like. Eve, uh... Or, or is this like your primary job? Strictly speaking, I am a thespian. Uh, I see. Um, okay. But that hasn't been paying the bills. Um, especially with like COVID and everything. Um, and it's a highly competitive field. I went to school to be an actor. Um, I have a huge passion for voice acting. Right? Um but the well has been dry and I needed something to um, to make payments with. So I would like it to be my side hustle. It is not currently due to necessity. 
well, as a player, you do great voice acting and yeah, that's always fun and acting and all just you really bring life Thank you. to your world. And so, speaking of um, bring life to a world, what's your favorite part of being a DM? My favorite part of being a DM is controlling everybody else's lives and receiving adulation for it. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. Um, uh, my favorite part of being a GM is entertaining my friends, uh, I think is the big thing. Um I like making people happy. Um, and I like storytelling. Like I, I like the craft of it. So being able to come up with stories, help help other people be creative and be like collaborative with it. Um, that is really my favorite part. Um, entertaining. Um, being entertaining and helping helping people be collaboratively creative are my favorite elements. Well, so let's talk about our game specifically for a little while. Um, I would love to. So... Um, when we were talking to Lars and to Winifred, we um, asked them about um, how long or how many of the other players that they had played with previously. So obviously you n- knew everyone else besides Kat and I before this game started. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, and um, so we were kind of the wild cards coming in. And so, um, and we're fitting in okay? Uh, you guys are, um, I would say for the most part, you guys are fitting in okay. Yeah. Um, I like hanging out with you guys. I like role-playing with you guys. Um, is so many people directly, like, attached to me as, as people i played with before was not intentional uh i, I want to make that clear um that was not something i was planning for uh, for example in the descent into avernus game there's only one player in that game that i know personally and it's a full roster there are five complete strangers in that game um But yeah, uh, I'd say you guys are fitting in very well. Um, There's a lot of open-mindedness and uh, respect. Okay. And you're not... I I know there's been some concern, right? Um, And it is completely okay to ask questions. You guys are never asking too many questions where I have had players, and you guys know who you are if you've been listening, um, that border that line. You guys are, you guys are doing great. 
Okay. So, um, and is this the first time you've ever run Storm King's Thunder? Uh, this is the first time I plan to run Storm King's Thunder to completion. I have played a little bit of the start of the um, vanilla Storm King's Thunder, and I have run segments privately, mostly to playtest and see how they function in practice. Um, but yeah, uh, this would be the first time that I am running the entire thing for another person or for other people um, from start to finish as a complete campaign. I think it's been good so far. Yeah. I mean, with my little experience, I've only known two worlds, Sigil and Eberron, so it's great. I'm having a great time. Awesome. Uh, Usually, Wind asks this question, but our party composition, um, how do we rate on a 10 scale, in your opinion? Oh, Eleven, you guys are you guys are beautiful, <laughs> um, incredible, invincible. Um, now, on a is seriously on a power scale. Yeah. Um. So, most of these encounters are built for parties numbering in three to five. Five um, E suggests that the maximum amount of people to have in a party is six. We have. One primary healer and a couple of sub-healers. We have one martial character and one character who can be a sub-tank if needed, as we saw last night. We have a rogue, and as you guys have seen, rogues just delete people if they get their sneak attack off. Boy, they that's just the remove truth. miniatures from the board, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, winning for um, tough. Um, you have a ranged combat specialist in Prue, and uh, someone with survival skills. So once you start getting out of storm reach, you have someone who can actually do tracking and stuff, which is where rangers shine in Five E. A lot of people talk about rangers being bad. They they aren't. They just um, have been kind of. When the game first came out, they were objectively bad for combat specifically. Don't ever take Beastmaster. Your (laughs) animal companion just eats your actions and leaving you to do nothing. Um, But rangers, you know, there's nobody better for, like, hex crawling or traveling from place to place in the wilderness in 5e. Like, nobody's better at it. Uh, So you have that in your corner along with Prue being a ranged combat. Um, like, she's on her way to being a sniper, like, and already something of a switch hitter. And then, if she decides to go that way, um, you mentioned in previous episodes, Wind, that you're worried that there's an artillery plat- that there isn't an artillery platform. Artificers can be. Okay. So, depending on what subclass... Porsche picks, right? That will um, determine 
what kind of spellcaster she will be. And the artillery platform, uh, with artificers, I believe it's literally called the artillerist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, I mean, that is slinging fireballs and, um, and lightning bolts and all of that good stuff. So with all of that in consideration, I would put your group at a nine. And I'm not kidding. Like seeing, like having some insight on how leveling works, right? And then once you reach level three and level five, um, you guys currently do a whole lot of damage and you have a whole lot of survivability. Like I would put you guys at a nine. Yeah, you, you put us to the test last night on that one. Oof. Yeah, that was tough. Um, especially the the boss room, but um, I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah, it was. Um, it was. I thought it was really well done. I am very fascinated to find out what's going to happen with uh, Porsche after the portal closure. Uh, I am too. So. Uh, so you would you would give us a nine. Um, so I started off at a seven. Cat has always been at an eight. I have moved up to eight since I saw us fight. And um, but I told Cat I I reserve to go back down to seven if um, we get later on and uh, we start fighting some heavy magic using foes and don't have the the like I said artillery platform to counter it. So, um, but um, yeah, I mean. You've been around 5th edition longer than me, certainly, so uh, you probably know better than I do. Um, so, all right, just within the campaign thus far, and we've only gone through the starter dungeon and really one session into the, into the second dungeon, what's been your best RP moment from any of the characters so far? In this campaign specifically? Yes. That's like it's like asking like it is your kids is it is a tough is. question because I think that everybody's playing their character pretty well I mean um you know Prue's definitely playing a very stolid like um you know night's watch kind of uh you know police type character and um, Porsche has been very flighty and, and, um, you know, talkative and that's, that's just part of her, her character. Winifred's been very stoic. Lars has been freaking hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think everybody's doing a, a good job of, of playing their character. So best RP moment. Yeah, I get it. It's, it's a, it's a tough call, but it does anything just stand out. Uh, I'm going to be. I'm going to be rude and say what my favorite RP moment is from every character. Okay, go ahead. Uh, (laughs) My favorite moment from Portia is when she confronted Winifred about the misunderstanding about her relationship with Kyrus. Yeah, that was funny. Um, Um, It was also poignant. Like, Portia... Portia is not a very 
um, combative character. So I read it as building up the courage to clear up a misunderstanding because her reputation as a merchant is very important to her. So I thought that was very good. Yeah, I liked that one. I think we talked about that one, didn't we, Kat? Yeah, we have. Okay. Um, my... My favorite roleplay moment from Tabane would have to be when she was seasick in the first session. Yep. I agree with that. Um, you really committed to the bit and it's a really, it's, it's just a really charming um, character attribute to have uh, that a lot of players wouldn't, wouldn't think to include. I even appreciate that there were aftershocks. So, you know, when the voyage got talked about later, yeah, Tabane was just like, yeah, it had to be better than the, the, than the trip on the boat, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I think normally people want to like min max and have like a perfect character with no flaws and whatsoever. But, you know, it was, it was a last minute addition that I added on for motion sickness with Tabane is like, I want to give her a personality and I based that loosely off myself, um, the motion sickness. So, um, in my backstory, I incorporated it, did not know we were going to, I mean, in hindsight, I probably shouldn't know, but did not know we were going to immediately go right back from one ship to another. So <laughs> she was, she was kind of having a rough time with it. Her loss, our gain. <laughs> um, my favorite role-playing moment from Winifred would, at this point, probably be his reveal as Mask happening in the out-of-session IC thread. Um, yeah. that's, a, that's a big reveal. Yeah, it is. And we we actually stopped uh, short of talking about that in our review podcast. We were going to cover it in the next one so that we could kind of figure out how to frame everything uh, as you know as it rolls into the next session and that gets carried on, carried forward. Um, but yeah, that was um, that was pretty good. Um, for. Uh, as for Keelan, I think... Actually, I want to go back. Um, one of my favorite roleplay moments for Tabane was gifting the alchemist kit to Portia. I thought that was very sweet. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was, uh, uh, it was a nice little character moment, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a shame it's made for small characters and not medium to large or medium yeah unfortunately it's not a magic item um but it because she's an artificer she can she can use that design to make something similar so it was a net gain yeah 
Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought um, about that deconstruction. Okay. Um, my favorite role-play moment um, with Keelan... There's been a lot of really good um, moments where you're willing to interact with the city. Um, like... Um, talking like talking to Bubbas and um having like a conversation with Gulth, who who uh like made the raps for you guys, the lizard man. Um, I liked a lot of that stuff. Um, yeah, Keelan's Keelan's interactions with Bubbas are very fun. Um, I, if, if I gave you the feeling of like pulling the rug out from under you when it comes to Bubba's, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I, you guys were talking about that with your conversation with Winifred and <laughs> like, I mean, we can talk about Bubba's if we'd like, but no, no, that's, yeah. uh, I, I, I just thought it was funny. When uh, I, I I didn't take it badly, I was just like, "What the hell?" I thought I, thought I was doing this almost a, as, because essentially, even though I know at that point I was taking Bubba's and using him, and, and but essentially I was giving him back to you, just cleaner and well fed. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? Like, um, like you mentioned that you know Keelan saw that Bubba's has like some developmental difficulties and um and he does, right? Bubba's is and you you guys will probably see this the more you play in, in um in games with me, but uh I tend to try and make my NPCs not one note and logically fit into a world. So like yeah, like Bubba's Bubba's counts on his fingers, right? And that's one form of intelligence that he has difficulty with. But, you know, he's lived in Stormreach all of his life. He knows sure. how things work. Yeah. He knows how you to know? get around and who to avoid and yeah. Yeah. Um and it also makes sense to me that somebody who's not from Stormreach might not realize that right away when interacting with Bubba's. And so I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned other uh, Keelan's interest in other vendors and that sort of thing. So the way that I've tried to represent Keelan, she came from a monastery, right? I mean, that's basically most of what she's known her whole life. Now she's out yeah. in the world and now she's in storm reach and there's all these things to see and do and interact with. And she's very much kid in a candy shop. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, it's the interaction that Keelan has had with Bubba's. I think makes makes perfect sense, um, and it makes for a fun, interesting story. Because why why would Keelan assume right a lot of, like a lot of these things? Um, why would she, as 
a cleric who's out on her first mission not want to help someone who seems like they need help right like right and so it's just just good rp uh yeah that's i mean that was the idea but um bubbas has been the the biggest representation of that i imagine but uh the 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 whole you know going in to see the armorer and buying the wraps on the street and all this, you know, going to the Phoenix, all of this has been, uh, I mean, she's just walking around wide eyed looking at all this stuff, never seen it before. So, um, it's, and also, uh, just to let you know, and I think I've said this before, I think you do a great job with being able to come up with, you know, if, if we go to this armor, the shops that are around it, the street vendors come, you know, they've got, names and and i and i get what some of the other players are saying some of that is smoke and mirrors sure i keep a book of names <laughs> so that when somebody asks me for a name i'm like uh next one down is this one <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it's um you know but still it feels very organic i guess is the best way to say it uh, credit where credit is due a big part of that is the creator of eberron keith baker um okay one of one of my most valuable 3.5 books is his is his source book on Eberron. Um, I I believe he won a award. Like the prize was having his setting. Right, the competition was building a new setting for D and D, and Eberron was the prize winner. All right. Well, um, and he has a whole book like just just about Stormreach, and I love that book. Um, but there's also some things that Keith Baker doesn't. I mean, that book is also almost like 20 years old. There's some stuff that's maybe not so great anymore. And you know, um, the uh, the blacksmith he only has a daughter in that source book. Oh, okay. Instead of the sons as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Lift, flex, and Esteban do not exist. Lift, flex, and Esteban in the source book. That's funny. And um, um, okay. So, so what yeah. about um, uh, Lars and Portia? Uh, RP. Um, uh, my favorite roleplay moment from Lars would have to be ah oh, see that's tough um i i live with the man he's my roommate so i get a lot of his humor constantly um <laughs> and i i love lars um i think probably my favorite moment from him though uh would have to be when he immediately leapt to try and help Portia, both in the combat um, and in the out-of-character chat. Because, like, like, his himboness, like, that's, like, that's a bit, sure. right? And it's a big part of his character, but... Sure. Um, uh, and, but I do want to say it's very well carried off. Uh, usually, I... I have to say that in some of the campaigns I've played, I probably would have found a character like that super annoying. 
but he pulls it off so much better than any other character or player that's ever tried something like that. Um, I, I think I mentioned these before. I had, um, a friend of mine named Chris, he played a, a pair of characters called Shardix and Vardix, the Heckler brothers, and I wanted to strangle him. But um, Lars pulls this off. Just the even the small things where he he grants bardic inspiration by winking at you. I mean, it, 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 it's <laughs> yeah. it's it's all a formula. It's all it's all set in, in you know, it, it's just. Uh, I think it's it's just done really well. <laughs> so, uh, and he's hilarious. So, yeah, and uh, I think I know his secret. Um, a lot of those characters are obnoxious for the sake of being obnoxious. You know. Um, like, like, what are like Heckle and Jekyll is what they were called? Yes. Like, like that. Like you hear their names, and that is those are a pair of characters who were made just to fuck with everybody else at the table. Sure, absolutely. Right, and that's not that's not fun. Like that's something that's like going to stop being fun. Session three, right for everybody. Two, right? <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> Like, like you made a character for a joke, right? Um, and a joke that relies on being annoying to other players. And if you're annoying, nobody's going to want to play with you, right? Um, Will builds characters, um, one, he thinks are going to be enjoyable to play. And he builds characters that trying to be respectful to the world around him. Like, Lars is a good person, right? Lars doesn't want to bother anybody. If some, like, if he, if he hits on somebody and they're like, hey, I'm not interested, he's not going to get upset and creepily and relentlessly pursue, right? He he just like drops it, moves on, gets distracted by a shiny object, you know. And the second part is that usually when somebody makes a character like that, and this is probably the bigger thing, like um, Heckle and Jekyll want to be the center of attention. I imagine. Would that be like correct to? Oh, assess? I I think that was absolutely the case, and uh, I don't I don't mind people taking center stage, but. It, when when all it is is that kind of uh, humor and you know um, trying to pull things over on the party, it's it just got really old yeah. really fast. It's it is a whole lot of look at me and look at me trying to be better than you, right? Like even if that wasn't consciously what they were doing. That is what was being likely presented in practice. Will built Lars specifically to not be the leader. He can be supportive, and he can sometimes be funny, but he does not want the attention on him, and when it's time for the attention to be on somebody else, Will as a player is like, okay, it's somebody else's turn. Um, I can mute myself, go get a drink, you know. Um, or just like listen, because Will likes listening to other people's role play, you know. 
And I think that's a big part of why Lars works so well, is because Lars Lars will do something hilarious, and everybody enjoys the Lars moment, and then he graciously steps aside and lets it be somebody else's moment in turn. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I, I can agree with that, certainly. Because um, I, every session we have, I'm just happy to be there, and I don't talk very much. And that's kind of counterintuitive to how I built my character. So, you know, that's something I got to work through, and I'm constantly working through. But I completely understand just wanting to just sit back and just let everyone do their thing. And you're working towards a goal, too. I don't like related to that. Um, and that's not only admirable, it should be encouraged, in my opinion. Um, but who's left? Prue's left. Prudence is left. Right? Uh, I think so. Maybe Portia, too, I, unless you did hers already. Uh, Portia, I believe I talked about first. Okay. Um, with the Speaking to Winifred about her reputation and her business and her dealings with Karis. Oh. Um, I actually got two with Prue, and they all and they both happened last night. Prue telling me, um, or asking me, about her prosthetic arm and its condition while trying to prevent Portia by being sucked into the singularity. I love that so much. And it's such a small thing. It wasn't any dialogue, right? Um, but it was still roleplay that was very important to the character. Prue um, has this disability. She has this prosthetic that isn't in the best condition. And I, as the DM, was completely willing to, you know, for the mechanics, just let that slide. But... Her reminder that the arm is there, and the arm is in bad condition, and asking if there was a possibility that it would break, is such a wonderful awareness of her character. And then I like the fact that when you indicated that it absolutely was going to break, unless she let go of Portia. Her answer to that was, there's no way in hell that she would ever do that, just to save the arm. Yeah. Yeah, like that whole scene was so good, and not a single line of dialogue was said. It was all just... id and motivation. Okay. Right. And I love that a lot. I also like her um, orcish berserker fury at the end. That was fun. Yes, that was. Um, and it's not obvious that she's an orc. You, it's not. And the, um, the other thing you know, you said you that um, she was setting up to be a, a sniper. Um, there was some decent sword work 
by her last night. Yeah, some A plus switch hitter action. Yeah. Uh, okay, cat. Uh, last question. Yep. So the other side of the RP coin is combat. Um, is there any combat moments that have stuck out to you? Combat moments that stuck out to me. Um, I mean, you guys are pretty good. Um, I kind of like that the party drifts apart regularly. It makes combats exciting. The level of like, yeah. oh shit, I got to get over there. When you walk into uh, a room with enemies. Um, I'll say I... Oh, sorry. I'll say that I think that we did it better last night. And uh, I mentioned this on the last podcast. Um, you know, whereas before we might have just one person straying off, I think that during free movement, we, even when we split up, we kind of split up three and three, or at least two and four, if you want to count Lars with the other, with the other group. Um, so at least everybody had one other character to back them up. And so I think that's a huge improvement over the, um, not, I mean, once again, I understand, you know, Winifred's going to have to go off by himself once in a while because we're going to get him found. And I can't sneak. Tabane can't sneak. And, but, uh, as just as a, you know, when we're just wandering around, not trying to be stealthy and we're, you know, 90 feet apart from one another. That doesn't bode well th- at the beginning of combat. Yeah. Um, but it also makes it narratively exciting. That's true. Um, yeah, there's definitely a sense, a great sense of the party learning, which is a big part of why the first dungeon is set up like it is. And it's it's so people to can, can like learn things like that and be like, oh, these are things we need to work on. And I'm glad that's working. If it was up to Wizards of the Coast, you guys would be in a town full of goblins that would just kill you with arrows. I, I, that's what would have <laughs> happened. Um, which sucks. But that's a... That's a tangent. Um, favorite RP mo- uh, combat moments? Um... First use of Divine Smite is always something that gets me as a Paladin fan. Yeah, that was pretty big. Yeah. It was a huge debate on if I wanted to do that or not. Mentally. So Kat's big debate on this, and you jump in here, Kat, was that he wanted to save a spell slot in case somebody needed to be healed. And my argument for this is that if he's using Divine Smite, Instead of saving the slot to heal somebody, he's putting an enemy down before they can do the damage that'll need to be healed. I will say that people should play their characters in the way that their <laughs> characters should behave to them. That being said, though, as soon as bad guys are dead, they're no longer a threat. Um... I think uh, having having a spell slot in the chamber is smart. Um, 
Tabane is a defender, somebody who's looking out for her companions. Um, I think it is completely in character. And so I have no personal issue with it, tactically or narratively. Um, strictly speaking, if a enemy is dead, they're no longer a threat. Um, and Divine Smites are your th thing, right? Like, it is the signature move for the Paladin class. If you're worried about if somebody goes down, that is what Lay on Hands is for. Um, one of my favorite Paladin memes is, like, you know the meme of, like, Drake, like, shaking his head, right? And then, the, and then him, like, smiling and, like, pointing at the camera? Yeah. Um, there's a paladin meme of that of uh, like pumping in all of your lay on hands or using cure wounds to bring your um, bring your like like idiot rogue or wizard who ran to the front line back to life or whatever it is, um, and then like compared to giving your downed companion exactly one HP from your lay of hands to to teach them the value of restraint. <laughs> <laughs> like, that tickles me so, so good. Um, but, you know, if, if you talk to players concerned about the meta, um, Wind is technically right, but what's more important is that you're playing true to character. And I cannot stress that enough. That's not me being diplomatic. If everybody played how the meta suggests everybody plays, everybody is playing exactly the same character. And that's that's no fun, right? Right. And yeah. I, I'm on board with that. Everybody should play their character how they envision things. I think what I was trying to relate to cat was he was so worried about keeping a, a heel in the chamber that he, he wanted to use the smite, but he was just like, I probably ought to keep a heel. And he like, he was afraid to pull the trigger because he thought he might need a heel down the road. I was trying to give him justification for why he might want to use the smite. And that is you put the yeah. enemy down, you, you, if you put an enemy down and they don't get their next turn, maybe that's 20 points of healing because their next bite would have taken a chunk out of somebody. Yeah. yeah. Um, logically, may say. Also, Divine Smite is just... It is the cool thing you can do offensively. Right? Your other big thing that you get later is auras, and those are completely passive. Right? People just mm -hmm. get bonuses by being near you. Which must be nice. I would love for people to just feel better just being in my general vicinity. Um, but yeah, like smites. Okay, so um, any yeah. any favorite combat, though? Uh, that fight last night, um, I like the tentacle. I like how you figured out that the, um, that the cistern was a toilet. It's not actually a toilet. Uh, behind the curtain, it is a magical sewer system that the giants uh, showed. Uh, tried to figure out where they would take all their filth to the astral plane and just like send all the shit into space. 
and there just happens to be like a giant um a like a massive uh uh Lovecraftian eldritch horror who just occasionally sticks his hand in to try and get a snack. <laughs> yeah, that made me so happy when you figured that out. Is that um, runes of um, travel or um, I can't remember the exact runes that were on there. I'm like, so it's a giant toilet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Um, Yeah, I'd say my favorite combat so far has been against the Gibbering Mouther. Um, it was... No. Actually, um, the fight against Steeljack in the mall. Actually, now thinking about it. That was pretty good, too. Um, it was just as high stakes... And it had a lot of teamwork and a lot of use of mechanics like like remembering to use non-lethal uh, damage against Steeljack. Um, trying to figure out the mechanism of the altar and the hammer while in combat. Um, everybody was using their their abilities, right, that they had on hand. It was really good. So what's been your favorite cat? Oh, the Gibbering Mouther for sure. Yeah, then, I, I agree with the, the steel jack. It was very mechanically intensive, but um, as we mentioned in our last podcast, we just at ninth level just fought a gibbering mouther as myself. So seeing that second level was a little terrifying. Yeah, we had <laughs> we had some different circumstances in the other game, but yeah, our ninth level characters faced one and um, we had. We couldn't just unload on it for various reasons, but um, it was that was a pretty good fight even for us. And then um, this one came through, and I'm like, "Oh wow, <laughs> we're second level. We're gonna die." <laughs> it's yeah. fine. You guys were removing runes. It was fine. He didn't have his gibbering ability. It's fine. Yeah, that was probably a big deal right there. So. He would have if you didn't uh, disarm any runes. Each time you uh, removed a rune, that boss lost an ability. Oh, that's cool. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Because this was the first time we've encountered an enemy, and I'm like, I know what this is for once. (laughs) So I saw that thing, and I'm just like, oh boy, we're in for a world of pain. But yeah, that makes sense now that the runes took away an ability, because... All he could do was just bite and do that blinding attack. And he couldn't, after the second rune went down, um, he couldn't do the blinding attack either. He had to, I had to get that right off. Yeah. Okay, wow. Yeah. Anyway, Teddy, it's been a great game uh, so far. Been enjoying the hell out of it. So, uh, And uh, appreciate you coming on and, and talking to us. Um, anytime that you want to come back, let us know. Um, you know, even if you just want to do it like after we complete each dungeon so that, um, you know, we can kind of recap and, and talk about what's happened. That'd be great. So, yeah, sure. That sounds like a great time. All right. Well, um, appreciate you, uh, carving the time out and cat, uh, for you hanging around here for about two and a half hours, getting our, 
our two casts out. So, um, yeah, that's fun. Uh, guys, um, we will see you all later. And, uh, once again, anybody else, um, wants to, uh, bother to come on, let us know. We'll be happy to have you and, uh, talk over some D and D. So everybody take care of yourselves.